Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your scriptures, for your word that we are able to read. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would open them up to us to hear your voice and to know what it is you desire us to know this day. And help us, Lord, to understand so that we too may be changed and seek after you. Amen. Thank you to Christine for what she said earlier. When, I think last November, when myself and John were discussing which passages of scripture to focus on over Christmas, and we, we chose to go through the traditional Christmas story, and I volunteered to do Matthew chapter 2, in the back of my head I knew what was contained. But as always, whenever I read this chapter, I'm absolutely horrified by what I read. And every time I think, what can I say about such a horrific passage it's like a bit of the old testament that suddenly crept into the new too often christians are accused of just focusing on the nice bits in the new testament and choosing to ignore all the nasty bits and here matthew has put it right front and center for us as if we wanted to ignore the reality of the horrific world we live in and the horrific world that jesus was born into I think it's interesting or worth noting that when it says that Rachel was weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, that there are times we need to acknowledge that all we can do is weep and remember. And there are many questions that we could ask ourselves about such a situation, but there are none, not necessarily any answers that would ease the pain. And so maybe it's right and appropriate that what we do is remember what happened. It is only recorded here in Matthew, and many people argue that, well, why isn't it recorded elsewhere in any of the histories? And we don't know how many children there were, whether it was 10, 5, 10, 15, 20, hundreds or thousands. But there's also the sad reality that we live in a world even today where these kind of horrors are still happening. And yet we never see them on our news. And the sad thing is, is something like this could happen at that time. And people would just see it as typical Herod. There is much I could tell you about the man. But if this was the only bad thing he ever did, I think it tells you enough to know what kind of heart he had. We could ask, why didn't God, if God could save his own son from this situation, why couldn't he save the other children? Why didn't he warn the wise men and appear to them in a dream not to go to see Herod in the first place? And there are lots of whys. And those of you and of us that have been through situations where we're grieving, you ask the why. And in the end, we do seek the Lord's comfort to bring us through. I will return to some of these questions. So if I feel like, if it feels like I'm taking a step back as we look at the chapter as a whole, it's not because I'm ignoring the difficult passage. But there is much here for us to also consider. Matthew wanted more than any of the other gospel writers refers to the Old Testament. He wants us to know that Jesus' birth, Jesus, the incarnated incarnation of our Lord, was a fulfillment of the prophecies that the Lord had spoken through his people many years earlier. That this vulnerable child was the promised Messiah. He uses passages from the Old Testament in ways that if we were to do so ourselves, some would argue we're taking them out of context. 
even including the one about Rachel weeping. When he refers to Jesus being known as a Nazarene, there isn't actually a passage in the Old Testament except for some, the brief passage in Isaiah where it says a branch of Jesse because the Hebrew word for branch is Nezer. But the curious thing is, is also that this chapter sounds very much like the birth of Moses. And of course, Jesus is the one like Moses who came again. Moses, who was born into a time when the Hebrew people were feared because they were governed by someone who wasn't one of them. A Pharaoh that feared the Hebrew people rising up, so sent out to have all the male children killed. And through that time, Moses was born and miraculously ended up growing up in the palace of Pharaoh himself. And here we have Jesus, who again is born into a time when there is despotic ruler on the throne who wants to threaten and kill anyone who is at risk to his power. How bizarre that Jesus takes refuge in Egypt, of all places. It lets us know that Israel is not the place that God had called it to be. It's not a place of refuge. It's not a place of peace. It's not a place where people could come. It's in fact a place where people are fleeing and running away from. About a third of all Jews at that time lived in Egypt for fear of living in their own homeland of Israel, or Judea as it was called. But let's look a wee bit more at the passage. Here we have wise men coming from the east. Now, it doesn't say how many wise men. I know we talk of the three kings. But there was obviously enough of them to cause an uproar when they got to Jerusalem. There was obviously enough of them that they got Herod's attention. And there are a number of reasons for this. Herod was not born to be king. And they've come to worship one who has been born to be king. But prior to Jesus's birth, the previous couple of hundred years, Israel had been in the middle of a war. Now, I read the book of Maccabees last year, and I'm not about to go into them just now. They are quite lengthy and not pleasant reading either. But when Alexander the Great died, he split the Greek Empire into four parts. Now, you'll remember the stories of Cleopatra because Egypt was one corner. And if you imagine you've got a square and it's split into four parts like that, the, cor- the point in the middle is where Israel was. So as the top right and the bottom left kept fighting each other, Israel was on the boundaries between the two bits. So it was constantly being taken over and invaded and taken over. In fact, when Jesus was born, the Roman Empire was still fighting with the Parthian Empire, which was what we would know as the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians. So when these wise men come from the east, they're actually coming from a land that the Roman Empire is still fighting. There's still a war going on at this time. Herod became king because he was a friend of Mark Antony's, the same Mark Antony that we know was a lover of Cleopatra. When he was made king, at that point, Israel wasn't in the hands of the Romans. So when they declared Herod to be king, he couldn't actually take up his throne. It was Mark Antony had gone back to Rome and said it'd be really good if we had a friendly ruler in this area. So he was made king. So when the Romans conquered Jerusalem, he was then put in place. But he wasn't a Jew. He was an Edomite. He was a descendant of Esau. So he saw everyone as a threat. 
He saw the Jews as a threat. He saw his own family as a threat. He saw the people around him as a threat. He had his wife killed. He had his sisters killed, his brothers killed. Anyone that was a threat to his sovereignty, he killed. So when these wise men turn up from a land that they are at war with, he automatically sees it as they come in and say, we are looking for one being born king of the Jews. He sees it as a direct threat. Why are these diplomats, why are these important people coming from other lands and telling me that there's someone else is going to be king? What is it they're plotting? What is it they're planning to do? I've mentioned before how Daniel, of course, when he was raised up in the Babylonian Empire and then in the Medes and Persian Empire, of course, would, would have been one of the heads of these wise men and suggested that perhaps some of his prophecies are the reasons the wise men need to look for Jesus. But there's an older prophecy, or there's an older passage, if we go all the way back to Numbers, when the Israelites were in the wilderness, from Numbers 24, when Balaam, the one who was hired to curse them but didn't, says this, I see him but not now, I behold him but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel and it will crush the borderlands of Moab and the territory of the Sethites. Edom will become a possession, Seir a possession of its enemies, whilst Israel does valiantly. So these wise men are saying they are following a star and coming to see a king. The star that's come out of Jacob. The king that will rise out of Israel. And here we ha- they are speaking to an Edomite who knows, if he knows this passage, will know that it goes on to say that Edom will lose its sovereignty. But from a political perspective, there was many reasons why Herod could have seen their very presence in Jerusalem as a threat. A threat to his power, a threat to any kind of peace or stability. It was a threat. But why were they there? And this is the curious thing. They were following a star. They'd seen a star rise and they were following it. But how come they ended up in Jerusalem and not Bethlehem? We don't know. Maybe maybe they lost sight of the star. Maybe the star guided them to Jerusalem initially before guiding them to Bethlehem. Maybe having discerned that this was a sign that the Messiah had been born, they then started to work things out with their heads. Here is something to ponder. These people were not Jews. They were not worshippers of Jehovah. They maybe had limited knowledge of the scriptures and the prophecies. But they knew enough to come seeking after our God. And the sign that they saw was in the heavens. And they come to people, but they can't quite get to where Jesus is. They don't know. But the people that did know where Jesus was going to be born, that knew he would be born in Bethlehem. They're sitting in Jerusalem. And it's them that inform the kings, the the Magi, you need to go to Bethlehem. So the people with the scriptures, the people that understood the scriptures, the people that knew the answer to where the Messiah was going to be born didn't go the 11 miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to check it out. So these people who are not of God's people, for want of a day, you know, it's an unfortunate phrase, 
have traveled hundreds of miles to come and see the king. But the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Levites, the high priest can't travel the 11 miles to go and check it out. The ones who had the scriptures, the ones who for hundreds of years have known where Jesus was going to be born. There are a number of reasons for this. Maybe they feared Herod. The whole of Jerusalem was disturbed by their presence. Maybe they just were scared of what Herod was going to do next once they had arrived. Maybe they were scared that this was going to be a return to war. But nobody followed the wise men to Bethlehem. It's out of character for Herod not to send us by himself. But this is a warning to us. Well, for me, I, I have to ponder this. Do we have the scriptures? We've had the scriptures for centuries. We live in a time where we have more access to biblical teaching than at any other time. There are sermons online. There are books online. There are documents. In fact, the abundance of interpretation of scripture, some good, some bad, that's open to us. Yet I wonder if we were to hear someone say this is a sign of the Lord's return. Would we hold on to it or has our hearing become dull? Have we got used to hearing so many false interpretations that we now don't listen to anything at all? Maybe the Pharisees, the Levites, Sadducees just thought, oh, this is just another one of those crackpots. Maybe this is just someone else who's taken something out of context and, you know, it's not worth the effort to go and check it out. It reminds me every day that when we read our scriptures, we need to ask the Lord to open them up to us so that we do not become dull of hearing, that we do not become blinded by the monotony of every day, that we don't miss the signs of the Lord around us. And I want what I'm about to say, I want to be very careful in what I say. I know when I preached on Daniel a few weeks ago, I said, I said, be careful. There are some things here that people say. And. Uh, and some of you, I don't some of you, I think, misunderstood some things I said. I want to be very careful about what I say. I do not in any way, shape or form, even speculatively, want to encourage anyone to consider astrology. As something that the Lord would speak to them through. But these wise men found the Lord whilst they were looking in the world around them. But that shouldn't surprise us. We are told that the Lord put the stars in the heavens for signs of the times, for seasons, for knowing when things were happening. We are told throughout the scriptures that when the Lord comes, there will be signs in the heavens. Astrology is a corruption of those things. It's in a corruption of what the Lord created the heavens to be, to use them for something else. But we should not be surprised that people do find the Lord when they are looking at other things in the world around us, even things that we ourselves would maybe not have anything to do with. In, Ro in Romans 1, there is a passage that you may be very familiar with. It says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So they are without excuse, for though they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkening, darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal human beings or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. It's the Lord's desire that he's found by everyone 
around us, everyone that we know the Lord is reaching out to. Though the wise men still needed that last step of someone that was able to open the scriptures to them and say, but it is Jesus that you are seeking and here he is to be found. But what about the children? The sad thing is there is much more I could say about the history of that time. But as Christine said, our hearts cannot help but be torn when we read about the children. It's a reminder of that Jesus coming was not just a spiritual thing. It was not just a nice thing. It wasn't just a sentimental thing. But it's also a reminder of us that to follow Christ is to follow Christ politically, ethically, morally, in all that we do. And that Christ has come to make a difference, not just to our hearts, but to the world around us. But it's also a reminder us that we live in a world where people will fight for their own personal gain. They will fight for their own power. They'll fight for their own authority. And whenever they do, it's the innocent, the young, the weak, the vulnerable that suffer. We live in a world where it's survival of the fittest. But the survival of the fittest means that the weakest perish. The Lord has called us to be different. He's called us to look after those who are vulnerable, not to look to seek after our own power and authority, but to seek for the better of others. The only good news I can offer is this is not where the story ends. Yes, the Lord saved his own son. Yes, the Lord guided Joseph to take Jesus away from Bethlehem so that he would not suffer with the other children. But we know it was only so that many years later he would suffer at the hands of the same people who are fighting for their own power and authority, who are fighting for their own influence. And some of whom even recognised who Jesus was and yet still went through. Jesus was saved from this occasion. Only so that he could be sacrificed at a later date. But his death was not to be pointless or meaningless his death was for our own salvation and this is the glory that he rules again this is not the end of the story and that's what we must always hold on to however that's not denying that there are times that just like Rachel we are to weep and not be comforted we are to lament and to sit with those who are lamenting who are crying whose heart is aching and to be with them to help them through. Just like the genealogy I shared on a few weeks ago, Matthew not only wants to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise, he's the fulfillment of the prophecies. He's made it very clear to us the reality of why Jesus had to come, why it was necessary that he did come, but why he did not come just to be another power, another vengeful king. He came to bring hope. To bring peace, to bring love, not just in his day, but to all of us. And when we go through our hard times, may this be where we find our comfort. And may we know his presence in our lives today. <laughs>